The Friday Reporter launched in March of 2021 as a conversation with today's journalists and has expanded to include newsmakers, lawmakers, image makers, and just about anybody who's in the news or the news adjacent business. The podcast is in partnership with PR Daily and is part of the Big Wig Podcast Network. If you like the show, please hit the subscribe button to make sure you've got ready access to the latest conversation. And if you've got an idea for a great guest, don't forget to send your ideas to Lisa at FridayReporter.com. Well, hello, and thank you so much for joining me for another episode of the Friday Reporter podcast. As I promised you earlier in the year, I am getting some of the best pitches from some really dynamite people, not only here inside of Washington, but really all across the all across the country. Today's guest is Jeff Nelligan, who is a senior executive at FDA, but he also has a long history of having served for two presidents, worked on Capitol Hill, and has written two really dynamite books that I can't wait to talk about. Jeff Thank you so much for being with me today. Hey, Lisa, thanks for having me. It's a privilege. Well, I want to talk a little bit about your background first, but before we get into the book stuff, because the book stuff to me is is really fun, and I'm enjoying them both, reading them myself. Um, tell Certainly. me, before we get started, how you got to Washington and, and how, your, how your career, sort of walk me through the path of how your career has gone so far. You bet. How I got to Washington, why I wanted to be in politics I've actually been in politics since I was about seven years old. My mom was a, a politico in Los Angeles in the city. And so my earliest memories are just walking precincts with her, wow. with a little clip-on bow tie and little khaki <laughs> pants and her walking up literally in, in the old days, the ultimate retail politics, no doubt. knocking on doors in different census tracts. And that's what we did. And I would go along just to kind of soften the blow if indeed um, she needed, you know, rescue. Sure. So I started there, um, went to school on the East Coast, wanted to learn a trade for a little while, was a journalist, um, National Review Magazine, New York, San Diego Union, and then came here to work for Congressman Bill Thomas, California, uh, who represented my own, my old family's district and Ways and Means and Budget Committee, Mm -hmm. and then just bounced to different jobs, um, kind of going up the ladder, I was worked as a press secretary for Congress for the chairman of House Transportation, Bud Schuster. Mm-hmm. Spent some years with GAO under Dave Walker. Um, in between that, I was with the State Department as a Schedule C appointee, nice. and then was with uh, HHS as a Schedule C appointee with forty three. Mm-hmm. Ended up on the Senate side as a press secretary for Kay Bailey Hutchison. And then decided, and this flows into the books, I needed to spend time around my children to help them through the college recruiting and just childhood and adolescence. And so took a job with uh, FDA. Mm -hmm. And that's where I still am today. That's fantastic. And, and, And never a dull moment there at the FDA. It's not as if you guys are leaning back and waiting for things to happen. You guys are breaking news and doing everything you can to try to put good things out there to the world. You're exactly right. In fact, lead editorial today in the Wall Street Journal was on the FDA. So you're, you're spot on. Never. Yeah, never quiet. But so fun and such a good pathway and a pathway that a lot of my friends and your friends are familiar with, because it's really how 
we build our backbone and we build our experience here in this town is by um, identifying great opportunities. Obviously, we're, we all compete against some of the most qualified and fantastic candidates. So when we do secure yes. those positions, we have to remember that the job is bigger than who we are um, because it always is. And then, you know, we do the very best we can. And lucky, you know, if we're lucky, we get asked to do something else that's new, cool and different. Right. So um and I'm, I'm, I'm super excited about that for you because we have a very similar pathway, right? I'm a kid from New Jersey who also sort of jumped yeah. into the scene and came to town when there were no political jobs left in my state. And then, you know, I've been here for what I thought was two years is now 22. So you know how that goes, <laughs> right? I'm sure. <laughs> so talk to me now. So the books that we, that at least I'm, I'm reading the first one, Four Lessons from My Sons, my, excuse me, Four Lessons from My Three Sons, How You Can Raise Resilient Kids. Tell me a little bit about, about that process for you and how you pulled that together. Certainly. Um, you know, you have children. We were talked about it earlier, children, kids, adolescents. Mm -hmm. You know, when my kids were really young, I, I wanted them to have some basic fundamental qualities. Ironically, or coincidentally, that I learned a lot in politics. And instead of, you know, putting it into, um, you know, you know, some high-minded sounding thing about values. I, I just wanted the basics. Mm -hmm. And the four basics I thought to raising a kid, you know, were personal conduct, mm -hmm. you know, basic decency. The second one, just the ability to develop confidence. The third one, resilience and adversity. Both confidence and adversity are day-to-day -day in politics, mm -hmm. every day, all the time. And the last one was just developing or inspiring that ambition in them, you know, three. And there's ways you can go about this. And, you know, the themes of the book were I used in trying to develop these qualities and this character in these kids is you can use the real world to point out the good and the bad and the inspirational. Mm -hmm. Kids won't listen to a lecture and they won't, you know, immediately stand to if you say, oh, you always have to be on time. So, the idea in the book was to use that real world that we were in every day, that every parent listening to this is in every day, going to school, going to athletic practices, um, events at school, being in a Home Depot, a, a giant or a Safeway, um, being at a game out in the community, neighborhood events. And my shtick was just to, when we were out in the world, to point out examples of, as I said earlier, good, bad, and inspirational mm -hmm. behavior, mm -hmm. and just drive it home that this is the way you should act, this is the way you shouldn't act, and these parents over here, some are good and some are bad, and I'm going to tell you that right now. Kids appreciate candor. Yeah. They respect the candid parent rather than the parent who is equivocating or doesn't want to talk about it, mm -hmm. and so that's how we kind of they formed their young years. And with each example that I point out, I have some funny quip. And with kids, you know, again, parents will know this. If you say something funny that's short and brief, you're going to hear it again and again and again. Yeah. That's just the way the child mind works yeah. at seven, at nine, at 15. And so that's, that's how the whole thing evolved. And it seemed to have worked because they started to, you know, when they would see these kind of incidents happening, it almost became reflex or muscle memory that I was pointing out something bad or good or inspirational, as I said, mm -hmm. and they took it to heart. And 
as I said, it all became a, you know, a reflex to act a certain way over the course of their years through childhood and adolescence. Sure. Well, it comes through in the book. I mean, there's a lot of humor in there. And and for those of <laughs> for those of us who are battling the the ages that we're battling, um, it's appreciated so much because a lot of it really is it is hard stuff. I mean, we're raising good humans. Yeah. At least we hope we are, right? Um, and yeah. so I appreciate that so much. I love that um when you when you talked about um being five if you're five minutes early, you're late. Uh, and that was right. something that you guys would say over and over again, and it sort of stuck. And I'm sure that now your boys are on time for almost everything. I'm fired because I was not taught that because I'm oh, I'm always five <laughs> minutes early, if not five minutes late. But I, it will resonate even in my head because it's short, it's sweet. I mean, even to this day at 50 years old, when I buckle my seatbelt, I tell myself, buckle up for safety, because that was the thing my dad used to say in the car when right. we were rolling, right? Something easy, rememberable. And we did it all the time. Um, and I think that that's really good. I also think too, like, um, it surprises me so much how small gestures are remembered. Uh, I remember oh, being like, yes. you know, in Washington DC, for instance, I was coming out of the city and there was a panhandler there. I, of course, I didn't have any cash on me, but I did have a, an unopened bottle of Gatorade. And so I rolled down the window and I handed it to him and said, you know, it was one of those hot days in Washington. There's so many of them, but the kids were in the backseat at the time with me. And to this day, when I see my kids out and about in these incidents where someone's panhandling, doing something else, they'll always look to their wallet or look to their pocket to see if there's something small that they can do, some gesture that they can give. And so that, I think, is something that comes very much through in in your book. Yeah, you know, that's that's such a great example because it mirrors virtually every example in the book. Yeah. If you do something like that, the kids take notice, and after a while, it becomes that reflex. And like you said, you did it when you were young and your kids now are 18 years old. Yeah. And that's their first thought. That's what I meant about the reflex, the muscle memory. Yeah. Um, and that obviously the, the theme of it being kindness, you mm-hmm. know, to someone down in their luck. Yeah. But those are the kind of examples from the real world. I mean, again, it's, it's perfect. And, you know, as you'll notice in the book, as you have, some of them are hard. You know, I mean, I'll point out parents who are jerks and I'll say, you don't want to be like that guy. Yeah. You know, like the guy you and called out for kids. being late saying we're busy yeah, being late. You and know? you said, you yeah, see, I guess we're not Mr. busy <laughs> late again. And you've heard him when we've talked because he lived in the neighborhood. I said it becomes uh, it becomes an excuse. Mm-hmm. And once you have one excuse, you have a hundred. Yeah. And and like pointing out the jerk kid or. You know, I, like I would say, you know, really tough times when I had just lost my job. Ha! I had just lost my job to President Obama. Um, he won. Mm-hmm. We lost. Mm-hmm. And I was fired. And we were at we were at Landon School throwing the ball around. And I said, oh, one more one more completion. And we're going to go get those donuts, which was our tradition. And the kids were panicked. And right. I'm in the midst of throwing it long downfield to another kid. They say, we can't afford donuts, Dad. You just got fired. And I said, yep, it's the end of the world. The idea being the candor again will always win out. Yep. And of course, I sat him down you know, in my office at the 50-yard line and said, I lost my job. Yes, and you guys know it, and we'll be fine. And if we can't afford the donuts, I'll, you'll be the first people to know. Yeah. But the, the theme behind it is if you just model calm, if you to kids who think that some massive saga is about to appear, 
they will get that into their own heads. Mm -hmm. And I will tell you, during my son's military careers, both have been in real bad situations. They told me afterwards that phrase came to their mind, which is, you know, kind of crazy. But it's got to be that candor and that example of the adult, which the kid picks up on. Yeah. And I think that that's I think that that's a great example, because I think that's very true that, you know, especially um in this town, we tend to be recession proof, but we're not politics proof, right? I do remember, I do remember that uh, yeah. my young son at the time told a teacher that Obama took my husband's job because my husband was at the <laughs> department. He was at EPA at the time. And I remember him being in elementary school and saying um, he didn't dislike Obama. He was the young kid at the time. And all he knew about politics was that it was one person's job and then it was another. But he used to say, President Obama took my daddy's job. And I said, wait, I let's, let's sit down and let's chat about that. Um, but I'm also sort of amazed about in this town, especially, and you tell me if you've seen this too, in your guys, um, the awareness of world issues and the awareness of yeah. other things, because it is so relevant to all of the things we work on. Um, but also too, because it's really tangible. People talk about, I was at a, a, a jump there was a birthday party for my niece not that long ago. And people were talking about whether or not the government was going to shut down while the kids were bouncing, you know, sort of typically we're talking about what games we're going to or what's happening. And we're in a space where people our government is our industry. So we talk about that. And the kids, I think, yeah. really do absorb that to your point. They do absorb it. And they also absorb if you're in politics, you've got to be confident. You've got to have that good you have to be good on your feet you have to have that presence of mind and a lot of people in this town i mean i just from my own myopic you know um station in life the the confidence factor is huge because if you're not confident and if you're not pleasant around people and easygoing you're not in politics too much longer mm -hmm. because there are <laughs> 10 guys behind you that's that right better than better than you at that. Absolutely. And that's who the member wants, or that's who the administration wants. And that's part of the theme in one of the chapters I talk about reading the crowd, the idea of wherever you go, you have that confidence that you walk into a room and you immediately assess it and mm -hmm. what is going on and who's hot and who's not. Yeah. And the ability to go up to anybody, introduce yourself, shake hands, you know, be in the correct clothing and carry on a conversation. People in this town, they're the best at it in any town in the, in the United States. Yep. I wanted my kids to be good at it when they were seven years old. Yeah. And so they were constantly in situations where they had to be on their toes, had to be respectful around adults and around kids. Right. But that idea of reading the crowd brings you that confidence. You can go anywhere and at the same time, take care of anything yep. that arises that could be, uh, um, you know, uh, off-putting. Sure. So, uh, so the boys are now adults and they've gone on to do great things, uh, without, con you know, without betraying too much of their confidence. I know that in your biography, you talk about how two of them went on to the academies and one went on to, uh, college. Tell me a little bit about them, if you will, now that they're adult and, and out in the world. Sure. Uh, the eldest went to a school, small school up in uh, New England called Williams. He played lacrosse um, and then this, and then got into, uh, OCS. He's a Mandarin speaker. Oh, wow. And he was, 
big time lacrosse player. So he was perfect for that kind of scene. Mm -hmm. Second kid is a guided miss is a chief engineer on a guided missile destroyer. Wow. Third kid went to West Point and he got a waiver from Secretary of Defense Austin to play pro rugby for two years. But the, the central part about him, and we kind of talked about it earlier, was they were in athletics from the age of four on. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they were average kids at four, um, but they each had a gift for athletics, just like some kids have a gift for theater. Mm -hmm. Some kids have a gift for the robotics club or marching band. Yeah. Um, some some kids have a gift for a lab. This was where they were. And the great thing is they kept getting bit better and better at the sport. And all three of them um, got very good at lacrosse and football uh, and not at a D1 level, D3. But sure. the key thing was in this in, in an athletic environment, you're around a lot of kids who are there because they want to be. Mm -hmm. And you're around kids who... They're disciplined to get better and better. There's tons of adversity. Every win is you soar and every loss, you're heartbroken. Mm -hmm. And you've got the camaraderie of the team. Yeah. So you have all those elements that it takes, frankly, to make it in politics as well. Mm -hmm. Because if you get blown out in one game, you got to go to the next one and try as hard. And be and ready. Yeah, just be ready right. to go again. And so those those qualities are replicated a lot in the military. Mm -hmm. You know, you've got a team doing something. Um, the, the discipline has to be top notch. And like in the case of two of them, they're in some dangerous situations around, you know, That's tons of ordnance, hundreds That's of thousands of tons of ordnance. Yeah. Um, and very sophisticated engines and everything else. You know, the kid at West Point, you're, all you've got is rifles, grenades, things mm -hmm. that, you know, that are very dangerous. So yeah. you get that discipline. And it's a different from the society today, which is one of the things that go into rebound is mm -hmm. there's no there's no equity in politics. There's no equity on an athletic field. There isn't equity in the military. Mm -hmm. If you can't do the job, you won't have it. Yeah. Yeah. They don't they don't stop the scoreboard when the teams are tied and say the game is over. Right. Because you're equal. <laughs> right. In, in a division one sport like my kid played rugby. They don't say, well, we got to get the other guys on the bench on the field for approximately one quarter a game, mm -hmm. you know. And so the idea that everything is competitive, like everything in politics is massively competitive, yeah. pushes these kids into these kind of jobs. Yeah. So the second book uh, is out just last year. Your kids rebound. Help. Is it your kids rebound from pandemic lockdowns? A parent's guide to restoring their family. Is that right? Yeah, that's correct. Awesome. Well, everybody could use that book for sure, because I oh, think boy. we're all sort of really still um, on so many levels, the littles, the mid, the mid age guys, the high school age kiddos, the college yeah. kids, every single one of, I mean, even the adults of, you know, all of us are really sort of trying to figure yeah. out how to come out of that. Are there any takeaways that you can offer the audience? Sure. The take, you know, that's, and that's a great way to put it. The takeaways from rebound are, you know, the things that I saw that happened were the biggest deal were was the absolute addiction to social media. Mm -hmm. And I should mention as a sidelight, Rebound has over 270 sites to medical, psychological literature and national surveys. That's great. So it's not just, you know, one guy with a bunch of anecdotal, you know, I walked up uphill to school both ways in the snow <laughs> type of thing. No, that's our <laughs> parents. Our parents did that to us. That, yeah, right. Exactly. <laughs> This thing 
has enormous sites that prove the points. The addiction to social media, the loss of confidence. Um, you know, kids eighteen to twenty five, one out of five had a major depressive mm-hmm. episode last year. Yeah, the use of social media hit an all time is at, is at an all time high, accelerated by the um, pandemic yeah. and the isolation, school closures, and the third person, the third part of it was the just absolute deterioration of physical health. Mm-hmm. I mean, you've got 56% of individuals between the ages of 17 and 25 in this country, 56% are overweight or obese. That's unbelievable. Yeah. And the numbers from 10 to 17 are 21%. Wow. Yeah. So you've got, you've got these three the addiction to social media, the loss of confidence, behavioral health is what it's normally known as, mm-hmm. and the physical situation. Yeah. And so the book, the book tracks all these and how they accelerated from the pandemic and then offers solutions to parents in order to get their kids back from, from the edge, so to speak. Yeah. On social media, it's a social media contract, a contract with the kids and the parents. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm a, I'm, you know, kind of a hard ass. I think you just yank the phone out of the kid's hand and say, we'll talk later. Yeah. And later never comes. Yeah. Now people say, well, you can't do that. Well, you're the parent. Yeah. They're the child. Mm-hmm. That's why it's called parenting, not childing. Yeah. You don't negotiate with the kid when you've seen, and there's been enough talk of enough published literature about it, about the destruction yeah, no <laughs> question. Kid mind with social media. No question about it. I mean, and, and I, kid, don't, I, I don't want to miss out on this, Jeff, too. So let me interrupt for a second for my sure. audience and the folks that are listening in. You're very frequently asked Parenting Magazine, lots of these other resources seek you out for guidance and for counsel, for cal- for columns and other content, because so much of this is really super relevant and important right now. That's correct. And uh, but the social media part is, is I think, the, the largest. And that just requires absolute strict boundaries. And I'm talking an hour a day. Mm-hmm. I mean, an average kid gets literally 367 alerts during a day on their phone. Wow. And they answer literally 250 of them. Wow. Now, what kind of mind can be formed by such distraction? Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. it, it's impossible. Yep. And we're all guilty. Kids. We're all guilty of it. I mean, even adults, you know, I mean, oh, adults, not even social media, emails and everything else. Time on screens. Mm-hmm. Typical kid today, a teen, 18 to about nine, if you average it all up, was eight hours and 49 minutes a day on a screen. Wow. On a phone. Wow. And that excludes schoolwork. I saw that. That's yeah. more time than the kid sleeps. Yeah. So that's, now that's awful. Mm-hmm. But then the second part is, where's the parent? Yeah. Well, the parents sit around 11 hours a day on a screen. Wow. So it really, it really, really kind of goes to the part of, you've just got to have a whole rejuvenation of what's going on in your family. No question. You know, at my so sister- in the second part, the confidence part is you just got to get your kids through many of the themes that are in four lessons. You've yeah. got to get them out in the world and make them do stuff. One of the things in four lessons that was the best thing that ever happened to them, it probably made them the kind of the military officers that they are today, is I took them to a mall when the eldest was seven and the youngest was four. And I said, okay, here's a $5 bill for each kid. Go get me change. This is not a race. Just go find somewhere and get change and bring it back to me. Oh, interesting. We did it again and again and again. And as they got older, they took, we went to the grocery store. You've got to get 20 items. You've got to get 30 and you get 10. 
and you'll meet me right back here when you've got them. Yeah. And just send them in a monster Walmart or a giant, and then they come back with it. And it just kept that those kind of tests just kept growing. That's how you build confidence. Yeah. That's how parents can build the confidence. That's a great the advice. The physical thing is just simple. Yeah. There's only certain foods you can buy at a store. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and that's obviously that becomes more of the tougher ones because a lot of the parents are in the same situation as the kids. Oh, sure. But, but that it's, it's harsh, but you know, raising kids isn't some fairy tale. It, it requires enormous engagement involvement and the parents don't put the time in their kids are going to be at that giant and they're going to be asking you and me, would you like your milk in a bag? <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. My, my, I used to take to my kids. I know this goes back to your hard, hard truths, but as a girl from New Jersey, I kind of dig it. (laughs) That's the way, that's the way we grew up. That's the way I grew up. Um, We used to do with the kids even now. So um, to make it, because nobody wants to go to the supermarket. I made it a, I made it a contest and here's the three things you need to get. And here's the three things you need to get. And we're, and I'm going to get my three things and we'll see who finds it fastest. Uh, Cause my kids love, they love a race. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> they love to like race. Another story. I mean, it's yeah. just perfect. For yeah. The kind of things that parents can yeah. encounter. And I'm sure. And own. the other thing too, is that a lot of parents are doing these great things. I think that your book actually so. is a tremendous validation. And I know my friends will say the same thing. Cause a lot of times we do these things instinctually and we are hoping that we're doing great work, but so much of what you lay out here is I think consistent with what you see with a lot of, with a lot of, parents today, whether it's all coming together. Oh yeah. I think, and you know, look, there was a challenge. I mean, I think too, I think we all need to unplug from social media. I think the pandemic exacerbated all of that for every single one of us to the point where it contributed to depression because we see others that are doing things that we suspect that maybe we should be doing. And there's this constant comparison. So, so much of that is really relevant. I'm hoping just like everything else, that there will be a tipping point where people will realize that they've had just about enough and we'll come back to a place where just like email is having a new day where, you know, we weren't using email for a while. We're using other texts and other things. Now I check my email first every day. That's the first thing I look at. I don't look at social media. I look at what's the business, what's happening in in my actual world. The rest of it is noise. (laughs) Well, you know, that's, I really appreciate the fact that you think that there will be this turning point, tipping point Mm. that you say, um, I, I hope so too. And uh, you know, I, again, I like the book, the first book, Four Lessons. It was always when when I've people ask me after the last kid left for West Point, what the heck did you do that they ended up like this? And I said, well, I was always involved, mm-hmm. you know. And so I wrote the book thinking, well, you know, this would be great for for parents to have. Just and it's loose, it's short. You can read the thing in forty minutes. Yeah, it's but a ton you're of just fun. Sharing your stories what you've seen I, you know i'm kind of inspired that maybe things people are getting this the, the hint on their own i think it is and it's a it's a total validator just as i said how long did it take you to write the books oh about the, i mean four lessons probably took me three months i i'd lived it yeah i mean i remember all the phrases we yeah. still say them these kids are 28 years old and they're still <laughs> saying you know it's good stuff though. like you know if you're five minutes early you're late yeah I mean, it's yeah. the funniest thing. Like I said, my kids have been in some tough situations militarily in, in their occupations and these crazy sayings have come up. Yeah. So no, that's so it took, that's it so was good. pretty short. Rebound took a lot about six months just because of compiling all the data. More research. Yeah. So that no one could assail me to say, Well, these this is anecdote city. 
Right. And this is, you know, well, because there's a lot of bad information out there, too, I think, about because yeah. it's so fresh. I mean, we're just off of this thing. We're just finally coming out of it and things are starting yeah. to reestablish. Um, that is so incredibly um, relevant and, and so important. And, you know, what you say is true about most of the people that I've talked to that are authors, um, those that use their in their reporting as part of the book to inform mm. the book that helped with speeding the process along and it still was yeah. long for all of them. So to your point, you lived it. So these were things that came to you quite easily, whereas doing that research, but still those are pretty short timelines for some tr- pretty tr- terrific information that you're putting out there. So I, I'm really super yeah. grateful for it too. It's also too, it's um, and this goes back to kind of the parenting thing. If you sit down to do something, and I had plenty of time because I didn't have to go to another, you know, ninth grade <laughs> lacrosse game. I'm not looking forward you know? to those days, but I'm looking forward to those days. <laughs> <laughs> so there's a lot of time all of a sudden. Yeah. But it, it also, too, it it's easy to do because as your reporter friends, if you've lived it, you know, if it's meant that much to you, yeah. it's not that hard to turn around. Yeah. No, that's so true. Well, Jeff, I can't believe it, but we're at the end of 30 minutes. And oh this gosh. was the most fun conversation. We're going to have to do this again. Um, but before I let you go today, as always, I'm going to ask you for a recommendation for a future guest for the show. Oh, boy. You know, one springs immediately to mind. And it's a man who's had an enormous impact on the federal government and on me. His name is Dave Walker. He's the former Comptroller General of the United States. That is the head of GAO, the Government Accountability Office. He's finishing up a stint at the U.S. Naval Academy as um, the Crow Lecturer on uh, Political Science and Economics. Awesome. He's also run for office in Connecticut, so he knows, like many of your listeners, hey, what it takes in a campaign. Yeah. And he's also been an Assistant Secretary of Labor, head of the Pension Benefit uh, Guarantee Corporation, and a senior, uh, a senior vice president, Arthur Anderson. The guys covered the waterfront. He'd be a great interview. He knows it. a lot about what's going on today with the budget. Well, I mean, right. There could be no more relevant conversation, right, these days yeah. for sure. So yeah. I would love, I will, I will definitely reach out. I'm grateful for that recommendation. As you know, that's how we keep these conversations going. Just like anything else, have coffee with, have coffee with Jeff and he'll say, you know who you should visit with? It's like automatic in our conversations in Washington, D.C. I will tell you, Lisa, that's this town. Yeah. And the reporters you talk to, you know, and the p- political types, it go, all goes all the way back to the genesis for this book. They're confident, they're sharp, they're alert, and they really have something to say worthwhile. Super awesome. That's so great. Jeff, in my show notes, I'm going to make sure that our listeners have a link to your books so they know how to find them because I think that they are, like I said, they're a validator for some of what I'm doing and there's some great advice for some things that I probably need to be thinking about. I am so super grateful for your time today. Thank you for being with me. Thanks for having me. Well, there you have it. Another episode of the Friday Reporter Podcast. Thanks so much for tuning in. I love having this show. I love you to be part of it. Thanks again. Thanks to PR Daily for being a partner. And thanks to the folks at Big Wig Podcast for letting us be part of their network. See you soon. <laughs>